Hey, my name is Chad Lewis, and I'm a pastor here, and I was walking around my office this past week. It's, it's back here, and it's not very big, so I can walk around it several times and feel good about myself. It feels like you're covering a lot of space. I just did 50 laps. There you go. All right. But I got to uh, some of the pictures I have hanging. I have my ordination certificate from 2005, my home church in North Carolina, and just was remembering the ordination process and how they grilled me. It was really intense. And I was thinking about the things that you're prepared for in life and then some things you're not prepared for in life. And one of the things that I continue to be shocked by in the last 12 years, the last 10 years of pastoral ministry here at Sojourn is the, the depth by which people suffer. It's how much, how deep it is physically, emotionally, spiritually, the people suffer so intensely. And there's so much in us that wants to come in and rescue people from suffering and just say like, this road of desolation you're on, I'm just gonna take you off of it. But in reality, even though we can come alongside people, we can support them, we can love them, encourage them, point them to the truth, be a faithful presence in their life. We cannot rescue them from the road of desolation quite often. And quite often it's the very road that they have to travel, this very road we have to travel. One of my favorite authors puts it like this in preface to one of his books. It's called Abba's Child, and he was described 40 years as a Christian like this, and see if this resonates with your heart. There have been times when the felt presence of God was more real to me than the chair I'm sitting on, when the word ricocheted like a broken-backed lightning in every corner of my soul, when a storm of desire carried me to places I've never visited. It's like, man, that's good, that's good. But then he writes this, see if this resonates with you. There have been other times when I identified with the words of Mae West. I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. That's kind of funny, isn't it? To at least two people. So (laughs) see if this resonates. When the word was as stale as old ice cream and as bland as tame sausage. When the fire in my belly flickered and died. When I mistook dried up enthusiasm for gray haired wisdom. When I dismissed youthful idealism as mere naivety when I preferred cheap slivers of glass to the pearl of great price. And this is kind of a description of the Christian life, right? Times where, man, this is real, this is beautiful, I'm filled with joy. And times where it's like, man, this is, seems dead to me. And today we're looking at two disciples of Jesus walking a road to Emmaus, and the fire in their belly had died. They were crushed, they were devastated, they were at the road of desolation. And what I wanna do is we read through the story, make some comments on it. I want us to ask the question is like, what is our road to Emmaus? What's the desolation we've walked or are walking or how can we prepare for this next road of desolation we will walk on in this world? And then where is God in the midst of this? What's his posture? And what can we learn from this, this story? Let's remember the context. We're in the third week of a, of like a mini resurrection series here with, with Easter. And we're looking at this, these events that are post-resurrection. And remember the triumphal entry, Jesus is hailed as, as the coming king. Everything's great. And less than a week later, he's nailed to a cross and placed in a tomb. And then they hear these reports, the tomb's empty. And that's where we pick up today. And so I'm just gonna have you stay seated for the reading of God's word. I'm gonna read through the story, different sections, draw out some different points. And let's seek to apply this. And one of the things that resonated with me this week as I, I was studying this passage is that Luke writes, the Gospel of Luke, he writes Acts, and he talks in, in Acts 1 about 
For 40 days, Jesus would have all these appearings to his disciples. He'd eat with them, he'd teach them. And he was very intentional about what he put in here at the last part of, of Luke. And so this is a very important story. It's hidden with, filled, I'm sorry, with a bunch of truth. Some of it seems hidden, but it's, it's right there on the surface if we'll dig just a little bit. And so let's hear this story. And the first, first point is desolation, seeing with earthly eyes. And this is the point the disciples are at. So let me read the passage and make some points as we read along. That same day, this is Resurrection Sunday, two of Jesus's followers, these are his disciples, were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And so this is what's consuming their mind, consuming their thoughts, everything about Jesus, everything. And, and we can only imagine what they were talking about, the three years of ministry, their hopes, their dreams, and then the crushing reality of Christ's death on the cross. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. A lot of the commentators for this, this uh, hiddenness of Jesus will say, well, it's because of his resurrected body. It looked a little different or because he came in such an ordinary way. But we see here, we, we don't exactly know, but God did hide their eyes from seeing that it was truly Jesus. And so verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? And then they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. And as I imagine this scene, I can imagine them just stopping, just so forlorn and just looking like, are you for real, bro? <laughs> for real? You don't know? And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. And here's Jesus. What things? Jesus asked. And I'm just imagining Jesus going, you know, kind of chuckling. I, it's not in the text, but it's just my holy imagination. <laughs> it picks up the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and they'd seen angels who told him Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to sea and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. So we get from the context of this that they had heard the report, but they, they weren't believing that Jesus was alive. Just like we saw last week that they thought these were just like fairy tale, like this, this couldn't happen. And so as we look at desolation, as we look at this path that we will travel on in this life, it's guaranteed. In desolation, our human default is that circumstances will speak the loudest. In desolation, circumstances speak the loudest. We see a part of something, but we cannot see the whole picture. And our tendency in desolation is to hyper-focus on one small part. And what it does is it sends us to a place of despair because it's like, man, if this is happening, this is it. I, I can't see beyond that. In desolation, also, some deep core beliefs are revealed. And we can... Um, Look at this, this story. He says, verse 21, Cleopas or the other disciple says, we had hoped he was the Messiah who would redeem Israel. And they were hoping for this earthly kingdom, even though it would have been a temporary kingdom, it would have been huge for them that they would defeat the Roman empire, gain their 
uh, their freedom again and live as a United State. And that was their hope and it was crushed. And in our times of desolation, our, our true hopes can be revealed, the things that we're trusting in, the things we're hoping in, the plans that we thought would be best. And we can despair those things. I think a lot of times in the Christian life, especially in the tradition I grew up in, if you had something that wasn't uh, the, the best vision or the truest or, or something was revealed in you, it'd be like, yeah, you, I knew you weren't a man of faith. I knew you weren't a woman of faith. It makes sense. Just repent and go back over there with the, the middle school Christians. We varsity Christians are over here battling to believe in our faith is secure. Praise Jesus. It was kind of a condensation. It was condescending, if nothing else. It felt like the condensation of, of desolation. I didn't have that scripted in here. You might be able to tell that. But it really felt like that. It's like, hey, I guess I'm not as good a Christian as I thought. But in truth, isn't this our human default? Like, we have plans, we have wish dreams, we have all these things inside us and we're like, I'm moving towards this and then the road has a blockade in it and you're like, oh, oh, God, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? In desolation, often something dies. There's death that occurs within us, death of our own hopes, our own plans and we have to keep walking but it's, it can fill us with despair. When our plans, our ideas, our pride is killed, and I think this is a cycle that takes all of our lives. We'll never get beyond the point of, of God having to sanctify something in us, to redeem something in us, to draw us more to him, to know him more. And I think about the prayers in Ephesians 1 and 3 that Paul could pray for anything. And what's he pray for? He says, I want you, I, I pray that God would reveal himself more to you, that you'd know him more, that you know the height, the width, the depth of his love for you, that you grow deeply down in his love and in, in these prayers that he could pray for anything. He's saying, I pray that you know him more. And, and Jesus says it in the high priestly prayer in John 17, this is eternal life that you may know him and the one he has sent to know God. He's the pearl of great price. And so many times our own plans, our own things, our own ministry, we can dress it up in a spiritual religious nature. They're the very things that are robbing us from really knowing his heart. And when those things die, what often happens is we wake up. And when we wake up, we see what we've been living for. We see that we've been clinging to the wrong things. And the next part of the cycle after we wake up is we have to weep. We have to mourn. And it's not a mourning that leads to despair, or it shouldn't. It's a, it's a mourning that can lead to refreshment in life so that we can walk anew. We wake up, we weep, and we walk a new way. And that's a cycle that takes place in our life over and over again. And so we're on this road to Emmaus in desolation. And my question for you is, what does your road to Emmaus look like? Uh, pastor put it like this. Pastor Kevin sent me this quote, and I thought it was awesome. Talking about the road to desolation. He says, Emmaus is the place where we go in order to escape. A bar, a movie, wherever it is, we throw our hands and say, let the whole thing go hang. It makes no difference anyway. Emmaus may be buying a new suit or a new car or smoking more cigarettes than you really want or reading a second-rate novel or even writing one. Emmaus even, may even be going to church on Sunday. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that this world holds nothing sacred, that even the wisest and bravest and loveliest decay and die, that even the noblest ideas that men have had, ideas about love, freedom, and justice, 
have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish men for selfish ends. It's like, whew. That's kind of a depressing quote too, isn't it? And the truth is in desolation with earthly eyes, if we only hyper-focus on, on the circumstances of life, of the things that are going on in our lives, that's where we'll end and we will run away. We'll, we'll try to binge on Netflix shows, whatever your vices are. And, and I know this all too well. But the question is, do we stay there? Do we stay there? What is God's view towards us in our desolation? What's God's heart? And remember, with the triune God that we serve, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and eternal unity and love, everything that we see that's created was created out of fatherly love, out of the friendship of the Trinity. What is God's heart? We look at Jesus, and if you see Jesus's heart, we see God's heart, right? And so let's look at this. Jesus shows up in the ordinary, and we can miss him in the story, right? Luke tells us that at the very beginning, it's Jesus, but it's just like, man, this, this revelation, Jesus is so ordinary. And I was, I was thinking like, if I were just to make up this story and just write it, I'd say, like, I'd have Jesus flying in, like just swooping down, bright light coming down, blinding the guys and just like, why didn't you believe? Open your eyes, boom, shooting lightning out of his fingertips and just like, oh, oh it, it, he's Jesus, he's risen. But God's ways are not our ways, right? Jesus just picks up the path with them. Seven mile journey. And he's walking and talking with them. And you think, gee, this is God. What's he gonna do? He's gonna come and say, hey guys, you're not thinking right. Let's stop. Time out. He's like, what things? What's going on in your heart? Why are you despairing? Do you serve a God who would stop and ask you, what's going on in your heart? Why are you in despair? A God who says, I love you. I want to hear. Share your woes with me. God is near the brokenhearted. This is Jesus. And he walks in the ordinary with them. And he draws out their woes. Jesus listens with compassion. He said, quote, Jesus must have asked this question with a twinkle in his eye and kindness in his heart. David Gooding points out how loving it was for Jesus, having journeyed from Galilee, inner Jerusalem as king, to travel back with two of his disciples down the road of their disillusionment, and then to listen to their doubts. Jesus will show us the same kindness. He will overtake us along life's road, falling in stride with our sorrow and confusion. Then he will ask us what we know about him, hoping that we will listen to the gospel and see him as savior. Jesus is in our lives right now, but quite often we don't notice him because he's in the ordinary. And we've noticed this in, in pastoral ministry. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of theological work being done on the ordinary right now because there was this, this sense is like, if we live our lives, and so many pastors can get caught up in this, we get caught up in it as Christians. We live for the exemplary. We look the exceptional. It's the next big event. It's the next thing. What's the next revival? We got to go. We got to go. And what we do is we forget how to live life in the ordinary. And where is most of life lived? It's, it's lived in the ordinary. It's in conversation with one another. It's sitting with the scriptures. It's looking at the sunrise. It's hearing the birds of the air. I look at, we have rabbits in our yard 
And I wonder, Lord, how do rabbits survive? They don't have claws and powerful teeth. They just hop around and hide in thickets. And they do breed quite often, so that's another way they survive. But my goodness, how can it be safe for a bunny rabbit to live in God's kingdom? Because he's the ruler and reign. He reigns. And this is our God. And so as we think about can we live life in the ordinary? And there's two paths forward in desolation. The two paths forward, bitterness, coldness of heart, or the other path to turn to Jesus, share our woes with him, to listen to him. And I have to give these disciples credit. Everything had been crushed, but what do they do with the, the traveler? They listen, right? They listen. And so from desolation, we see the moving towards consolation, seeing with eternal eyes. We pick up the story in verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus, and at the end of the journey, Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them, and as they sat down, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. At that moment, he disappeared. In times of desolation, the invitation is for us to embrace a bigger story. Instead of hyper-focusing on the, de and the details are important. If we go back and look at the guy's details, they were right on. They were just sharing their hearts. We thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. And they couldn't see the bigger picture, but to say, Lord, what is your bigger story? And we look at human history, look at, at the scriptures for that. And we say, Lord, show me beyond my limited vision. And help us to see with eternal eyes to say, Lord, your plans never fail. Your plans won't fail. Missionary Amy Carmichael gave her life. There's a great biography Elizabeth Elliot wrote on her uh, called A Chance to Die, I believe. But she said this, she said, faith doesn't eliminate questions or doubts. Faith doesn't eliminate questions or doubts, but faith knows where to take them. And so with your doubts, with your questions, where are you taking them? Are you just stuffing them inside and just trying to live life alone? Or are we bringing those before the Lord, bring it before community? And in all this, God's word speaks to the loudest. Verse 27, it's a beautiful verse. It says, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I, I was listening to an older pastor this week and someone asked him, if you could appear anytime in Bible times, where would you appear? And he said, I'd appear on the road to Emmaus. So I could walk those seven miles and hear what Jesus had to say about himself through the Old Testament. And the question I have is, are we in awe of God's word? I know I'm not just like that intro. And it's interesting, like I make my living with this book, right? But quite often it's me taking it and trying to apply it to other people's lives. And the Lord's invitation is, Chad, take this word, apply it to your heart and let it go out from there. This is about relationship with me. This is not about rules and edicts. It's about knowing my heart. It's about knowing who I am, knowing what I've said about you, that you're my beloved child. 
It's about life with me in the kingdom today. And so we come to this word and we say, well, what did, what did Jesus say? Starting with Moses and the prophets and, and just briefly thinking about it this week. I love looking at prophecies and apologetics after years and, and thinking about the 39 books that were written for the Old Testament between 1450 and 450 BC. And some of the prophecies are just so clear and specific. There are many skeptics who say, they've said for years, like, oh, they were just adding after the fact. And let's, let's talk about the prophecies here real quick. In the Old Testament, about the coming Messiah, the Savior, there are over 300 prophecies, some number it closer to 400. And I have to pause here and just ask a very important soul question to you is who filled out an NCAA bracket this year for basketball? Come on, more than that. We'll have to do a six-week class on that, why that's important another time. <laughs> but I, I was thinking I got a math degree back in the day so I could calculate how poor I was going to be, and it, it was very effective in that. <laughs> One of the uh, things I was thinking about, I was like, hey, they're offering these billion-dollar prizes to whoever. So I, I think I'll try to write a computer program to give every possible scenario coming down. So I, I just quickly Googled it and it just rained on my plans. Cause it was like, uh, the, the chances of getting the bracket perfect, just the 63 games as they come in, it's, it's one in 9.2 quintillion chance. One in 9.2 quintillion. It's like, oh my goodness. And I tell you that because it speaks to the prophecies. Mathematically speaking, when you look at the prophecies in the Old Testament, for one person to fulfill eight of those prophecies, it's been calculated that it's a one in 100 quadrillion chance that someone could fulfill those, to be born in Bethlehem, to die the way he died, to be born of a virgin, all those things. And then as you go on, uh, they've calculated one person fulfilling 48 of those 300 plus prophecies would be one chance in 10 to the 157th power. And then you think about one person fulfilling all 300 plus, and it's like, it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. And even though there were skeptics saying, oh, those were added in after the fact, in 1947, it's like God had a little surprise. A shepherd boy was trying to find his goat and thought he'd fallen down a hole in these caves, and he, he took a, a rock to throw to see if he could hear it, and he heard something break when he threw the rock in there. He's like, oh, I found treasure. And he goes down there and starts looking around. He's like, oh, it's not treasure. It's just manuscripts. It's just these scrolls. In reality, it was treasure. And what they did is they excavated 10, 11 caves, and it was the Dead Sea Scrolls they found. And it definitely predates before Christ walked on the earth. And guess what's in there? Isaiah, Psalms, and, and, and many of the prophecies that we have today. And it's like, yeah, they are. They are there, and they're true. Crucifixion, another note was dated back to 600 BC. And the two prophecies we'll read right now were written in 1000 BC and 700 BC before crucifixion was even invented. And they talk about piercing, piercing of hands and feet. And these things God gives us, he gives us prophecies so that we can know his heart and we can trust in these things, that we don't have to have a blind faith. But we say, man, these things, these things are real. This is God's heart. Peter writes this concerning the prophecy. In 1 Peter 1, he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing 
when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. This is the spirit of Christ speaking in and through them. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and that's me and you. When they spoke of these things, that they have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. The mystery of prophecy, the beauty of it, that which was once was concealed has now been revealed. And so we look at Psalm 22, and I won't read the whole passage, but just looking at it, this is a thousand years before Christ. King David pins this. And Jesus speaks these, these very first lines on the cross. And many scholars will say it's to show that he's fulfilling the, the very prophecies that was written a thousand years previous. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him de deliver him, since he delights in him. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my guard, garment. It's like someone standing, just writing down what's happening at the crucifixion a thousand years before it takes place. In Isaiah 53, I won't read the whole passage again. You can go back and read. This is a lot of the spiritual nature. So that was a lot of the physical nature of what was taking place. This is a spiritual nature. It says in verse three, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we, were, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each, of us, each one of us has turned our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. And we think about the power of prophecy written for us so that we might have faith and believe, especially in times of desolation that God's plans are going to come about. The same God that provides us with prophecy tells us that he created the world. And we think about in times of desolation, the thing that can console us, that can get us through the hurricanes, through the storms of life, are the power of God, the goodness of God, his love, and also the promises of God. I was doing some uh, teaching up at the Oaks, Pastor Kevin Jameson planted that church up in Ohio a few, several years ago. And Brian Lapina, one of our pastors was there, Jackie, his wife, and it's a great church. I love to go up there and do training and stuff. And I have this presentation I've been doing for years on the universe and how big it is. And one of the things I, I do is show up a picture of the Milky Way galaxy, like a, a map, and I put, you are here. 
on the outskirts and then go to the middle and say, how long do you think it would travel, take to travel from the outskirts to the middle of the Milky Way galaxy? Milky Way galaxy has 100 billion to 300 billion stars. And uh, going the speed of light, you could calculate that, but no one goes the speed of light that I know, 186,000 miles per second. It's like, eh, that's a little too fast for me. So I calculated it with a jet airplane, 600 miles per hour. So to get from the Milky Way galaxy outskirts to the middle of it, calculated it, number crunched, and it'd take you 40 trillion years, 40 trillion years. That's a long road trip. And when we think about that, the massiveness of the Milky Way galaxy, astronomers, scientists say that it's one galaxy of 100 billion other galaxies. And so I was teaching this stuff and somebody raised their hand. He was a science teacher and he said, hey, I've got some other stuff for you. Did you know we're in what's called the Goldilocks zone? I said, I, what in the world is that? He says, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. And I said, please elaborate. And so I'm writing this stuff. And it's like, I'll give you credit, but I'm, I'm writing this as material here. And uh, he said, if we're a little closer to the sun, we burn up. A little farther away, we'd freeze. We're right where we need to be. God put us right where we need to be. And he said, we're also in a cradle that's uncrowded within our solar system. I said, explain. I, I was getting paid to teach, but he was doing all the teaching. It was beautiful. It's what I prefer. <laughs> and he just started sharing. He's like, we have, a, it's uncrowded. You have a great view of the universe from our planet Earth. And God put us here so that we could see the vastness. In Psalm 19:1, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That this is the same God who created all things. He's the same God that creates the intricacies of a flower. He's the same God who speaks to our souls. He's the same God who walks with us in our paths of desolation. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can take you from my hand. Your names are graven on my hand. Nothing can remove you. You are mine. You are mine. And this is God's goodness, his love, and his promises. I'll never leave you or forsake you. In our paths of desolation, a lot of times it reveals to, it reveals to us our view of God. I worked at a camp for several years in Macon, Mississippi. It was in 50,000 acres of, of pine trees. It's just in the middle of nowhere. And in training, we had to do this thing called a faith walk where you put a blindfold on and someone was behind you. They couldn't talk, but they guided you. And the problem with the faith walk was that it was my old college roommate, John Putt, and he was a prankster. And I didn't trust him. And I had good reason from the past to not trust him. And on that faith walk, he gave me more reason to not trust him because he was guiding me. He ran me into a picnic table, then into a tree, and he tried to walk me into the lake. And I was like, man, I do not trust you as my God. But in reality, that's how we see God sometimes. But I parallel that with my dad who sacrificed so much for, for my family and me. And if I had my blindfold on and my dad, and I knew it was my dad, I'd be able to walk, I'd still be hesitant, but I'd walk more confidently because I know he would do what's best for me. And even if I started going down a hill, coming back up, I'd be, it's my dad, I can trust him. And the more that we get to know God, the more that we see he's trustworthy, the more we'll trust him to guide us throughout the desolations, through the ups and downs of life. And here's the conclusion. The invitation is embracing the with God life. We will walk paths of desolation. God will bring comfort in due time. But the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
our identity as beloved children, us being in Christ, it's the walk with God. He's with us. And let's see what the conclusion of this story was. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they find the 11 disciples and others who gathered with them. And this is, I had to read this a few times and do some study because I was, I was confused at first, but they, get, they, they have this amazing story. They bust in on the 11 disciples and they're about to share. And this is what the 11 disciples who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. And they're like, Oh, yeah, he did. He appeared to us too. It's amazing. He's, Jesus has been busy. He's been going around. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And these two disciples, seeing Jesus change everything, in the dark, they turn around from the place they had fled to to go back into this place of danger, on a dangerous road, in the dark. But what was the difference? They had hope. They had hope. They'd been comforted in Christ. They went back where they were supposed to be. And the means of growth and grace for us is being in community, testifying, feasting on God's word, being with each other, not trying to fix each other, but just saying, hey, we'll journey together as broken saints. We'll love each other, we'll encourage each other, and we'll be on this path together. And it's the life of the beloved. And in closing, before we, we take communion, I'd like to read uh, something that's, that's new, uh, I, was, I teach some classes with Pastor James Santos. He's a dear friend of mine. And one of the classes, he pulled this out and he said, I'd like to read an anti-psalm to you. And I was like, what? What is an anti-psalm? It sounds devious. And he said, it's, it's something David Pallison, who's a pastor and counselor, he's like, he writes the opposite of what a psalm is to show the depth of what it would look like to live as if the psalm weren't true. And he said, let me read this. And so I was, I was fascinated. And he read the anti-Psalm 23. And as I heard, I was like, man, that is a great description of an orphan, someone living like God is not their father. So I'd like to read the anti-Psalm 23 to you. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at every turn, but I'd rather not think about it. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free falling into void? Sarte says, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. It's a very vivid description, isn't it? The opposite of Psalm 23. And I... 
I don't even think I'd like to say this, but I, I, I would, part of me would like to say like, I'm never there. I was there back when I was 15. But now I'm 43 almost. I don't, I don't live there. But there are days I live there. There are days when I wake up and anxiety so fills my soul before I swing my feet out of the bed. I'm like, I don't even want to get out of bed today. The path of desolation for many of us. And we can live like we're orphans. And I know, man, I've got it down. I've got my defense mechanisms in place. I've got the way that I can just do enough and then retreat, hide. But God continues to invite to something more, invite something more. And so as I swing my my feet out of my bed in the morning, I, I have on my mind Psalm 23. And usually I don't get past the first verse. And it's, I've been meditating on this the last three years is, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. It's a New Living Translation. And I, and I just stop there and I get stuck there. So the Lord, King, Creator, Majestic One. He is not, he might be or he was. He is right now my personal Chaz shepherd, my guide. I have all that I need. And right after I say that, I pretty much usually say, Lord, I don't feel like it but I'll trust, help me to trust. I have all that I need for today, for circumstances in my life, for the the things that will rage and wage war against my soul, for conflicts, for lack of strength, for whatever it may be. His rod, his staff, they comfort me. This is the with God life. And though feelings are important, emotions are a window into the soul. They'll reveal a lot of what's going on in there. We can't let that be the final authority in our life. We have to say, Lord, by your grace, help. By the community, go with me. Let's go together. The Lord is our shepherd. And he's given us his promises. He's given us relationship with him. And we will walk the path of desolation but let's walk it together, brothers and sisters. On that very night here with the two disciples, Jesus takes bread. And I read a sermon this week and it, it, the main point of it is like, uh, the pastor said, ain't nobody break bread like Jesus. Ain't nobody, when Jesus break bread, things happen. Feeds the 5,000, feeds the 4,000, institutes the Lord's Supper, he disappears. It's like, Wow amazing. But he breaks the bread. He says, this is my body, which has been given for you. If you doubt Christ's love for you, look to the cross, look to the shame, look to what it looked like to bear the wrath of sin for us so that we could be in relationship with him for all eternity. In the same way, he takes a cup of wine after supper and says, this is the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. The new covenant putting a new heart in you, sons and daughters, inviting you into this family that's eternal. Walk with me, learn from me, hear my voice and follow. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come forward in faith and just say, Lord, you're here, you're here. And break off a piece of the bread, dip it into the juice or wine, whatever your conscience permits. If you're not a Christian, the scriptures teach that you shouldn't partake in this meal, but that you're invited to discuss with us and talk about the claims of Christ, what God's doing in your life, we'll listen, we'll listen. 
And as we sing these songs, thinking about we're gonna feast in the house of Zion, there's a meal that's coming, and that it is the power of the cross that sustains us today and forevermore. Let's remember that God is with us, and if he's for us, who can be against us? Let's pray together.